Well, it is fantastic to be able to spend uh, this particular time with uh, everyone here uh, over the weekend. And if you weren't able to make some of the other sessions, that's okay, because I think this is probably one of the most important ones. Uh, when you think about being a Christian and being and having a home that displays Christ-likeness, I'll tell you what, you are, uh, think about it in this way, you are so much like Jesus Christ when you have the heart of forgiveness. If you want to find a way in which you think, how can I be more like Jesus? Be forgiving. Forgiving is an element of your life and my life that is demonstrated in our homes, in our churches, in, in all of our life uh, as we live in and amongst, amongst the community. It's the John 13, how do people know you by your love? It is through how you forgive, how you're gracious, how our homes depict that kind of element. And yet forgiveness is a challenging thing. One of the reasons why it's so near and dear to me personally is because I was so bad at it. I was really bad at this. I can remember early parts of my own marriage as my wife and I uh, got married almost 25 years ago, only to come to the recognition that not only was I bad at it, she was bad at it. And, and the reality is, is that when you got two people who don't really understand forgiveness and even value what it is, it can make a lot of mess in a real quick hurry. I can remember various occasions where you just, I just did not want to forgive and believing in my own mind early on that somehow I had a justification for doing so. If you wouldn't have done this, if you wouldn't have said this, well, I'll tell you what, uh, by God's grace, she has grown in that area immensely. Uh, I'm just joking. The reality is, is that both of us had an element of our own life where when we didn't understand the forgiveness that Jesus gave to us, we weren't readily able to give it to one another on a real quick basis so that we could find peace and harmony in our marriage and then when we learn to have this in our home. So the, the importance of this topic of forgiveness could not be minimized in any sense of its value to not, to not just to the Christian home, but to the Christian life. So much of what we understand about the concept and ideology of forgiveness is so rooted in the cultural concept of what they think what this actually is. Turn, if you would, if you have your Bibles, I want to go to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, and talk a little bit about this issue of the parable of the unforgiving servant. So that we have a good basis to recognize what is really at stake here when we don't forgive. And I think this parable really depicts for us the importance of this area of forgiveness in our own life. Now just from a contextual standpoint, just tuck this away in your mind. Remember, Matthew 18 is the preceding text to this to talk about how do you deal with conflict in the church. And it's kind of interesting as we walk through 
that we will, we have to remember this topic, even in Psalms, this, this, this psalmist said this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. See, forgiveness and fearing God are connected to the psalmist. To a degree that all of a sudden what I didn't really realize is that when I was unforgiving, I was fearing God very little. To think that somehow I could get away with being an unforgiving kind of individual and yet still fear God and yet be unforgiving. But you know what, what we recognize in our own lives? And I hope you recognize this as even you evaluate your own heart. You are And I am a person who is in constant need of forgiveness. I bet I would be willing, and I'm not a betting person, but I would be willing to bet that that you, you ask forgiveness from the Lord on a pretty regular basis. And you relish in the reality, and you bask in the relationship that you get to appreciate all because every single time you go before them, whether it's an angry statement, an angry heart, an angry action, something you don't love, you're not loving to the right degree or loving too much. And you say, Lord, please forgive me. And every single time, you know, I'm so thankful the Lord doesn't do this. Like, let me think about that. Like, let me... Let me, let me take some time. He immediately reinstates you to relationship based upon your genuine confession and repentance. And if it wasn't for that, that God would do that for us, think about where you and I would be in relationship with God. We would be under his wrath on such a constant basis, we would not be able to find peace. We would not be able to enjoy the life that God wants us to experience. But if we don't understand our relationship to a holy God, we begin to think less about my own, our own iniquities. Like, I need forgiveness so much. And I have been forgiven for so much. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely word until they have something to forgive. Now, you and I, you could probably realize at some point when someone does something against you that is hard and sinful, and all of a sudden they come to you and, they, and they're asking for forgiveness, there is part of your sinful soul, as was mine. Well, I wanted to say, I'll think about it and get back to you. Instead of an immediate heart desire to say, yes, I will forgive because that's what Jesus would want. Now let's look at this parable just for a moment. And I want to read, uh, I want to go through it in sections because I think it'll help us to take it apart just a little bit as we think about the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, there is an element that we want to talk about as we, as we think about the idea of forgiveness. And one, it's twofold. I want you to begin to think about forgiveness in the sense of your judicial standing. When we use that word judicial, what we're realizing is there is a legal component that occurs when someone repents of their sin, they are standing before the judge, God Almighty, and he declares something about them 
that wasn't there before. They were guilty, but now they are forgiven and they are viewed as free and they are viewed as righteous. That happens, this judicial element occurs between you and God when a person repents of their sin, where they stood before God prior to being saved, and their judicial component standing before the holy judge when they said, God, please forgive me for my sin, and if I don't, I will go to hell. That is your judicial forgiveness before God. Now, he doesn't just stop there. This is how good he is. He just doesn't say, all right, good, you get your judicial standing all figured out. You're legally declared righteous before me. And then say, now be gone out of my presence. What we have is a relational concept of a constantly forgiving God, which is what we see in 1 John 1, 9, that every Christian I know is so thankful for. If you confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is a relational, or I would say it another way, it's a familial concept. Now when you have been, think about it this way, when you, when you get judicial forgiveness, you become a child of God. Once you become a child of God, now you're forgiven as a child, not as an enemy. And now as a child of God, the Father in heaven says, I'm going to reinstate you. Because every time you sin, it separates us. And it puts a barrier between our relationship. And every time you confess and you ask me for forgiveness, I will cleanse you, 1 John 1 says. I will restore you to right relationship. It's both judicial and it's relational. Let's clear up another component that we'll, as we're going to come through this text and we're going to highlight. What always happens when it comes to forgiveness is to try to understand the concept of what we mean by it. Is it, is it the idea of conditional, meaning transactional, meaning it takes two people in order to do it? And without two people, you only have one side of the, the equation, or, or should we look at forgiveness? Is, the, is forgiveness in the Bible unconditional, where I don't need anybody else. I don't need them to come to me. I just need to forgive them. Now, I will argue that forgiveness in the Bible, both on a judicial and a relational level, are conditional. You didn't get saved because you all of a sudden decided that you would, you would do this. God did this for you when you asked him. And two parties, God brought two parties together by his saving work, by his irresistible grace. He continued to draw you. And when you got there and you repented, he made the transaction through his son, Jesus Christ, by his shed blood and, and death on the cross. Which is why we say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You and I don't get the privilege of forgiveness uh, unless the conditions were set by God and he made the transaction. And he drew you to the transaction when you didn't even know you needed it. He did all of the work so that this element of judicial forgiveness could be conditioned on one person, Jesus, and Jesus alone. 
You know what that does for us? It really frees us that when we become forgiving people, we don't look at ourselves and go, <laughs> look, I am so forgiving. I'm one of the most forgiving people you know. This is not about you. Every time forgiveness, whether judicial or relational, occurs, this is because God is doing something in you and he gets all the glory. He, it's, it's to display that. This relieves us, by the way, of many remarks that people often use when you think about forgiveness. And I always think about it in this way. Someone does some horrific act against a family member and hurts them, and then they get, in the, they get into jail, and that person's put in jail for what they've done, and they interview the family, and the family says something like, well, uh, we've forgiven them. And my response to that is, did they ask? Where is that person coming from? Are they willing to make the transaction? Or do you honestly believe you just have this all wrapped up and you can do it all by yourself and you don't need to go out and seek for that? Many people often think, oh, well, I just, I just make the transaction, but I don't need the other party. Now, where does this get us in trouble? Especially within the home. It gets us in trouble by just honestly thinking that, well, I love them, so I forgave them, but I'm just going to overlook their sin. I'm going to not deal with what they're supposed to, and then all of a sudden, I've just forgiven. I've forgiven, I just hand it out. And I don't need it, they don't want it. I mean, think about it. If that person were to say, if you were to ask yourself, does that person want forgiveness? You might say, no, but I forgave them anyway. They got it whether they wanted it or not. Ah, what do you think about that? You get it anyway. I would say to you, the difference between that is God calls you as a believer to have a heart that is ready to make the transaction when the transaction is ready to be made, even horizontally. So the goal is to have your heart prepared so that you're really quick and ready to forgive the moment that you're called to do it. Why? Because it displays the mercy of Jesus Christ. And you should always have a heart that is ready to be merciful. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. I mean, forgiveness is all about mercy. Follow this parable uh, as, we, as we walk through it. And let me just make one statement before we do. Think of 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, above all love, uh, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you realize how many people use this verse to simply just say, I love them enough to not deal with their sin. I mean, think about that for a minute. Loving someone means you'll actually deal with it since love, does just loving them cover their sin? I think that's not the question. The question isn't does love, or love cover a multitude of sins? The question is how does it do it? And it does it through forgiveness. It does it through a willing transaction that someone comes and is willing to be merciful, that's how love can cover a multitude of sins. Even when someone sins against me, no matter how many times they do it, and now isn't it interesting in our text that when we think about forgiveness, use this definition, okay? Forgiveness is the act of pardoning sin for the sake of restoration, for the glory of God. That's what it is. It's forgiving is an act of pardoning when you got your sins taken away, you, you were pardoned from your sentence. 
that you would spend eternity in hell. And yet he pardoned you. And whether that's judicial or relational, you are pardoning someone for the sake of continued union, restoration for unity's sake, and so that God would be glorified. It's interesting to me that you look in Matthew 18, notice this in verse number 21. Therefore Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, 77 time, or as, many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay, now isn't it interesting that when we asked the question, it was the same question that Peter would ask. How many times do you have to do this? How many times do you have to be sinned against and then you have to be willing to give? Isn't there a limit? Isn't there a cap on this? Christian, there's no cap on forgiveness and you don't want it that way. Could you imagine if, if, if at, at upon entering your judicial cleared relationship before God, he said to you, you have a hundred mistakes you can make. But once you reach 100, it's done. See, you don't want the cap on it because judicial forgiveness is the model of what relational forgiveness ought to afford us, which means every single time, no matter how many times it happens, and of course, Jesus is being, uh, he's not giving a number if you calculated that, simply to say once you read this, this, this forgiveness cap, then all of a sudden you don't have to. And you might even think to yourself, well, you know, is that, would someone really think that? Well, I can remember the very first situation of, of, of a church conflict that, that erupted in a church because someone finally just came out and flat out and said, I don't care what the church does, I don't care what, who, who is involved, I will not forgive. I remember in the context of a church family where we're having to, as a church body, call into to, to into account this unforgiving spirit in the context of even church discipline. Now people thought, people said, well, you don't discipline for those reasons. Well, what are you going to do if all of a sudden somebody in your body, somebody in a family relationship, a husband, a wife, all of a sudden says to the other, I don't care what you say. I'm not forgiving you. I will not be or do what Jesus says that I should do. Well, the body, even when, I, when we called that into account graciously over periods of, of time and, and, and heartfelt begging of just saying, please follow Jesus in this area. And when the person didn't, I remember saying, reading this verse, Jesus says we've got to forgive. And, 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 and a new a new believer raises their hand who had just become a member and, they, and they, they ask this question. How many times do they have to do this anyway? This seems like a lot to ask. And you saw all the mature believers in the body turn to each other and whisper each other like, what is going on? 70 times 7. How do they not know this? But the reality is that people struggle being continually forgiving. But it, it's bore out of a context of the Apostle Peter saying, how many times? Because honestly, the three, he was already being pretty generous when he said seven. Because in the, in the legal system and the historical law the, the, that was created, seven was pretty generous. 
And Jesus says 70 times seven to say no. You gotta do it every single time. Now here's a principle we wanna take with us as we walk through, that forgiveness reveals God's mercy for those in debt to him. It reveals God's mercy for those in debt to him, okay? Take this picture and overlay it to the book of Jonah just for a second. Jonah's mad. You know the story. He gets swallowed by the whale, spit out by the whale, finally goes to do it, and he goes and he preaches, and then he preaches what God tells him to preach, and then he goes and sits on the hill. And he's sulking in it, and he's pouting, and what does he want? He wants wrath of God. And then when God confronts him and he says, Jonah, why are you angry? This was his response. I knew you'd be merciful. I knew it. Like, think, for example, the sons of thunder in the New Testament. James and John. Hey, Jesus. Why don't you just, why don't you just give us some power? We'll just, uh, we'll take care of the problem. Like, we'll just bring rain fire down from heaven. You imagine Jesus is just like, guys, where's the mercy? Like, you want to just destroy them and send them into eternal, eternal damnation in hell? I've come to save them and demonstrate mercy to them. And that's why forgiveness reveals God's mercy. That's what the sad part of even the story of Jonah is. How could you not want God's mercy? And then say, God, I knew you'd be merciful. I mean, this is so important for us. Now look at the the parable contrast, this reality of vertical and horizontal forgiveness. Vertical forgiveness being Romans 5. For while we were sinners, still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, there's your judicial forgiveness, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. Okay, here's here's the other principle. Human forgiveness is modeled after God's forgiveness. So you take that judicial picture, and now you take the question of Peter, how many times do I have to do this? And he's saying every single time. Now, follow Matthew 18. And following, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who went to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. An irrepayable debt, by the way, would take a lifetime to pay that back. And since he couldn't pay it, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all he had, and, and, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, and he forgave him of the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found out his fellow servant who had owed him a hundred denarii, which is not even remotely close to what he had owed the master, seized him, and he began choking him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mer- have you sh- and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart see the serious nature of all of a sudden saying you're not going to be a merciful person means that you're subjecting yourself to a relationship with God in which, which is not going to be favorable. Here you have the judicial forgiveness and you almost get, you know, this whole parable is bore out of a couple of things. One, Peter's question primarily. How many times do I have to forgive? And then he says, let me show you something about vertical forgiveness. Like you had an irrepayable debt. You couldn't even pay it. You begged me to not do this. And I said, I'll forgive you of all of it. And you don't even have to repay me. I will absorb the debt that you owe me. I will absorb the offense that was against me. And he says, and and then he says, he went out and he found his servant and his servant and he uses the same exact language. And then his servant said to him, just be, be patient with me. I'll, I'll pay you what, what I owe. And, and he says, no. And you know what Jesus' response is? I want you to just really let this settle in your mind. You wicked servant. Now, it's not to be harsh or, or, or detrimental, but I want you to realize when you are, what do, you, do you want to be categorized as a wicked person? One of the ways you'd get categorized as a wicked person in the mind of Christ is that you don't be, you you become a merciless individual. When you show mercy, you are so like Christ. I'll say to my wife, in the midst of our home, over 25 years of marriage and family, I'll say, wow, out of all the people who have forgiven me, during my lifetime. Beyond Jesus, you have forgiven me probably the most of anybody else. You saw my failures. You saw my wickedness. You saw my sin. And I can remember what it was like when, when she and I did not forgive one another very well. And we could clam up and we could blow up and we could be somewhere in between and all of a sudden it would happen where all of a sudden I, one or the other would just be waiting for the other one to come back and be merciful. The big question I think that can happen for us and help us in the home is, who's going to rush to be filled with mercy? Instead of just be waiting until, oh, I guess, like here, here's what I would do in, in areas of forgiveness when I was so bad at it. I would finally get around to recognizing I can't get around this whole element of knowing I'm wicked and sinful and I said things and I shouldn't and God certainly revealed that. And I would go back and I would say, oh, sorry I got upset. Do you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. And then it was like, all right, go ahead, it's your turn now. Go on. I mean, I'm not going to be humble by myself. We're going to do this together if we're going to do it. I'm not going to be the only merciful one here. I want to have some other mercy going on here. 
And I would almost like just stand there waiting to hear like, you're not making me do this. Like I'm not subjecting myself to that. And when that happens in the life of relationships within the home, that's not real genuine forgiveness. When all of a sudden you have to coax it out of somebody and their heart is not right. Like, can I just encourage you that, with this? Don't, don't just say, I forgive you, and don't mean it to save face for peace in your home. Plenty of marriages, plenty of family relationships will say something like this, and we even rear children in this kind of way. Like, we have replaced the idea of biblical forgiveness with cultural I'm sorry, or the idea of apology. Oh, I apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, reality is, I mean, have you ever seen this happen? In, have you ever seen this with your children? I saw it with my children, especially when they were younger. Like, there's somebody's in an argument, there's sin going on between, and you could say, you did this, now say you're sorry. Like, sorry. Well, good, all right, we're all fine now. Now go do what you want. I'm glad everybody's hearts are in the right place. Well, we often do that by replacing the idea of biblical forgiveness with a cultural component of, I'm sorry, or, oh, I apologize. And we don't even just stop there, is we don't really get to the heart of the matter when it comes to forgiveness, which is the point of mercy, is that there is a depth to mercy that sometimes we don't appreciate. I would often say things like this, oh, forgive me for being upset. Oh, forgive me for being upset again. Forgive me for doing this. Do you know that oftentimes our level of asking and cleansing for forgiveness always comes on the behavioristic level? Like, God, you know, I, I, I got angry again. I was fearing again. I was panicking again. I was, I was discouraged again. I was, help me not to do that. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my life I just said those words to the Lord. Oh, Lord, sorry for, you know, sorry for just... Being upset again. I, just, I know it's wrong. You know what I missed? If you've been here for the, for the, for the whole of it, understand it, that the heart is essential to getting to the depth of understanding and appreciating the mercy that is offered to you both in judicial and relational forgiveness. He, does, he is willing to forgive your behavior, and you should ask for it. I need to go back to the Lord and say, will you forgive me for this is what I did? But do you know what the real crux of the matter is that we often left, is left untouched? Lord, I did this against you. And it was because I was loving this in this particular way. And I was loving this in a particular way because I was believing this about it. And when I didn't get what I wanted, I got really upset. And it looked like that. But what I, my heart was really fixated on was this. I felt like they would not respect me. And I deserve respect as a husband. And when I didn't get respect because I wanted it and loved it so bad that I erupted in, ang in anger. We don't often get to the depth or the root of where that behavior came from because we're not interested. We're interested in moving beyond. Please forgive me. Get, I apologize. I'm sorry. Instead of saying, it transformed the way that I understood mercy. God, I needed you to forgive me for this, but the real problem was actually not what I, what I did. It was what produced what I did. Now think about it in the context of David. 
who sins with adultery in adultery with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, his, the, the, the recorded repentant psalm, isn't it interesting that the idea of adultery never shows up in Psalm 51? But what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Doesn't mean he wasn't sorrowful or didn't ask repentance of his behavior and his act of adultery, but he realized that if he didn't deal with his heart and his lust-filled mind and what he was after, that that would have never happened. And he went right to the source and said, it was my heart, it was the wickedness of my thoughts and my affections to what I began to love that produced the very thing that was despicable in your sight. This revamped the way that I thought about forgiveness in marriage because I stopped saying things, I, I, I didn't just stop at saying, please forgive me for being upset. I said, sweetheart, I need you to, to forgive me for being upset, but that's not even the half of it. What I really need is, I believe that you should have done this, and I began to love, believing that, that God me, allowed me to have this thing or whatever it was, and then I began to love it, and when you got in the way of what I wanted, I just got upset and I used words that were not kind and gracious and merciful. They were words to cut you down. They were words to criticize and sarcasm to use. And instead, yes, that's part of it and I need forgiveness for that. But I need forgiveness from you because I was loving something. I was not loving you. I was loving me. And I was loving me because I believed that I deserved this. And I need forgiveness for all of it. I need your mercy to be displayed to me at the very depth of the root of my sin. So that I don't, I'm not just tempted to just say, forgive my behavior, forgive my behavior. Instead of I go to the Lord, notice how this happens even judicially. I don't just say to God, please forgive me for this or that or another thing. I begin to ask my own heart and reflect and meditate and say, why did I do that? What, what was it about my heart that, I was, that was, I was loving in my heart in a way that I began to be this way? And then what was I believing that ended up producing this greater love for something that I shouldn't even love? And then when I didn't get it, now... And you know what God does? He is so merciful. He has a depth of mercy that can cover the most deepest roots of sin unimaginable. No matter how long you've sinned, no matter what kind of sin. Oh, I love the 1 Corinthians 6, 9 passage when it says that all these kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkards, swindlers, homosexual, all these categories of sin. And then he says something beautiful. And such were some of you. You know what he's saying? Is the depth of cleanliness of the Spirit is offered to the most despicable sins of the heart. And that, if that's you, and all of a sudden you're thinking, man, I have to be that kind of forgiving person, and God forgave me that way, that's what this servant didn't understand. And that's what Jesus was trying to display to the Apostle Peter. You're asking a question about how many times? I mean, think about how legalistic and pharisaical that was. Give me a number and I'll do it. Oh, you mean like there's no limit. Okay, that's a little different. i got to think about that. 
Jesus created the parable to help them understand the depth of his own mercy and grace of the king who had come to save the sins of the world. As he walks through it, he says, you know, we we notice this statement, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? I mean, moms, dads, no matter how many times your kids sin, there's just something, I loved it watching this when, when we taught our children what it looked like to forgive and ask their sorry, but do so in a way that's consistent with 2 Corinthians 7, that, that godly sorrow leads to, to repentance versus I got caught, so I'm sorry I got caught. There's a big difference between those two things. But when that little child would come back and look up at you and say, Daddy, will you forgive me? I sinned. I don't know any kind of parent in their right mind that is, a, is, a, is a godly Christian who would look at that child and say, you get out of here. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk to you right now. You melt. And you know what? The picture of the Father in heaven is he wants to display mercy. It's a way that he demonstrates his glory. He wants to give continued mercy. And he never even for a moment, says, I'll think about that. He wants us to be those kind of forgiving people. Vertical forgiveness from God drives me to, horizontal, to horizontally forgive my brother. And when I don't, I could be classified as a very wicked servant. Notice Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for, for him, or toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions from us. Okay, let's think about this the way the culture talks about forgiveness. You'll be familiar with it. Just forgiven, forget. Do you know what the problem with that is? Have you ever tried to forget? You wish you could, right? But you don't. See, the whole act of mercy partly is Because you can't forget, when you consistently do it, what you're actually saying is, I'll forgive you even though I know it's going to come back to my mind. And when he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far are your sins removed from me, okay, this is not, please don't attribute to the psalmist to say this, God forgives and forgets your sin. That's as far as the east is from the west. That's not what's going on here. What he is saying is, okay, because think about it in this way theologically. If God all of a sudden forgot about something, would he otherwise be all-knowing? No. So what that means is an all-knowing God knows your sin and he's willing not to hold it against your account as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed it from his sight. Not because he doesn't see it, it's because he's removed it as a picture. He won't hold it against you when you come before the throne of grace and you offer it. This is why Hebrews 10 said, let us go boldly before the throne of grace so that we can find mercy He doesn't forget it. He remembers it and doesn't hold it against you. That is what horizontal forgiveness looks like. Even when you sin in the home, you are pardoning people knowing that you're you're willingly going to have it, you're going to have it come back to your mind and you have to be disciplined to do something about it. Think about 
Matthew chapter 5, when you stand before the altar and you know you have something, a sin against your brother, leave the altar. Why? Because an unwillingness to forgive others hinders your horizontal relationship. An unwillingness to forgive others hinders your vertical relationship as well. Turn back just for a second, or even just think with me if you don't want to turn there. This is the last statement in Matthew 6 after the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Okay, do you know what that is? Okay, it's not judicial, is it? Like, I've never said to one of my children in my home, when they came back to, to you know, deal with something that was wrong, I didn't say, well, you know what, you sinned, you're no longer my son. God doesn't do that with us, praise God. Or we would be like in and out of sonship and daughtership all the time. We're like, oh, please give me it back. Oh, I lost it again. Oh, please give me it back. I lost it again. That's not what's going on in Matthew 6. What he's saying is, there's a brokenness in relationship with me. And if you think that all of a sudden you can pray this beautiful prayer, and, and he says, if you honestly want that, pray that you will be forgiving the way, the way Jesus, the way I am forgiving with you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, then there's going to be a problem with our relationship. Now here's the picture. It's the picture of the parable of the unforgiving servant. God is saying, you wicked servant. I forgave you everything, and you wouldn't even forgive another person? We have a problem with us now. Don't honestly believe, as a Christian, that you could live not forgiving other people, but be right with God. That's not possible. You can't come to a body or in a home and think to yourself, well, I'm just still growing in that. Like, I'm just working. But I'll get around to it. Okay, let me put another level of seriousness to it. How do godly homes, godly people come to a godly community and take communion if all of a sudden they're unforgiving to people within the community? There are times where I'm, here I'm administrating communion as a pastor and I realize that I had forgotten to take something, care of something with my own children, that I had sinned against one of them And I'm sitting there up in front ready to administer communion and we had a little bit of time between thinking, and my heart is just distraught thinking, I can't do this. I had to take a moment and step down and walk over to where one of my children were and just, I needed to take care of forgiveness right then. There's a seriousness that has to go into unification in the body at the point where Christians have to take it so serious that they're unwilling to take communion when they're at odds with one another. Communion is the sign of, 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 of a community filled with unity that depicts it as their union with Christ. If we don't take it that serious, then we don't deal with that. I'll tell you what, even, my, even as our family continues to to, to, to take these moments serious. Every single month before we have communion at church, we are on Saturday evening on family devotions and family worship before Sunday night preparing, and we're going around the room, and we're asking, is there any way that e- any of us sinned against each other? 
that we need to, to grant forgiveness, that we need to take care of things, because tomorrow we're going to stand before the Lord, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and we need to be unified. I can't have, as I examine myself, thinking, oh no, I didn't want it. I'll do it here, 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 but not here. That doesn't mean you're perfect at it. doesn't mean sometimes you don't have blind spots, but you make an intentional effort to be forgiving because without that forgiveness, you have a blockade between you and your walk with the Lord. And I would just encourage you in your homes that when you're starting to do that, that's why communion on a regular basis is a a positive thing because it challenges each person in the home to think about their forgiveness and their unity. That's exactly what Matthew 6 says, which we just talked about. A willingness to forgive restores your horizontal relationships. A willingness to forgive others restores your vertical relationship. Now notice this. Now here's steps. and We're going to walk through these pretty quick. One, here's step number one. We forget this often when it comes to the practice and applying of, of forgiveness. Now these are not entirely original with me. Ken Sandy put together various components and I've modified certain number of, or some of the statements, but I like this one. One, I've modified this one a bit in this regard. Determine if forbearance or forgiveness is needed. In Colossians chapter three, it says, forbear with one another and forgive one another as Christ forgave you. See, Determining if forbearance or forgiveness is needed is critical. Here's why. Forbearance is all about your preferences. Forgiveness is all about sin. If I ask someone on a forbearing issue that they need to forgive because they've sinned against me, but all they've done is they put something in the wrong drawer, that's just a preference. And like So many people argue over all kinds of ridiculous things like, you know, who squeezes the toothpaste but doesn't roll it up? You know, who puts the toilet paper roll on the wrong direction? You know, you think of all the things that people argue out that are just forbearance issues. This is where love helps where you don't call into account your own preferences and call it a sin. You're doing this, but I just don't like it. Yeah, but is it sinful? You have to determine that in your Christian community and in your homes. Am I asking my child... Am I asking my child to to understand a forbearance issue or a forgiveness issue? If there's sin, then of course you deal with it every single time. You have because it can be forgiven, it can be restored, mercy can be applied, and now you continue to enjoy that relationship. But if you become if if you mix these two up, all of a sudden all your preferences, your children are starting to think all of my preferences that I have that I can't find in the Bible are sins. When they, all of a sudden they go to the Bible and they say, you've been telling me that what I'm doing is sin, but I can't find it in there. Because your forbearance, because forbearance has now turned into an issue of sin. Because you like your preferences. Be very mindful as a, as a mom and dad to, to distinguish between something that is your preference. And it's okay to have a preference in your home. It's okay for you to say that, Okay, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not this, but I'm asking you as your parent to do this because the Bible says children obey your parents in the Lord. It's okay for you to say, here are the standards that I would like to have enforced. That's your responsibility. And you might vary from one family to another on some degree, but I will tell you this, don't mix up your preferences with the fact of what what is really going on in the Bible so that they can distinguish between what God doesn't say and what he does say. That'll help them with discernment and wisdom. 
Step two, determine which principle or command of God's, of God's were violated. It's a pretty simple thing. Where was the commands of Scripture violated? I was angry. I, I communicated with, with a lack of grace and kindness. I need forgiveness. But what's more is where did that come from? What principles of the heart were also violated? What did I love so much that it produced this? What was I believing that ended up fueling what I loved and then ultimately transpired in my behavior of what came out of my mouth? Jesus is so adamant about this in Luke 6.43. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks every single time. Notice step three. You confess your sins before the Lord and others. You humble yourself, and every time... Someone asks, how many times, just like Peter said, how many times? Well, as many times as necessary. And if you have a home that is a godly home, I'll, I, I told my, uh, my children many times, if there's one thing we're going to know by the time you leave this household, it's how to forgive. Because we just sinned a lot. <laughs> and I hope that that's true in your home. The context of your imperfect homes will be an occasion from which you teach and is an opportunity for you to display the mercies of God. We recognize our homes aren't perfect. We recognize there's imperfect people in that home. But they can be a home that is filled with mercy and grace. Confess your sins. That means that I would go. If I sinned in front of the other family members and I used unkind speech or some kind of way in which I sinned, then I would call the family back into the room and say, all right, Everybody saw this. Like, I need to make this right. I was a really, I, I was a sinful example to you. I said these things. You heard me say it to this person. And, I, and I've asked them for forgiveness. And they have granted me forgiveness. And we have restored our relationship. You know what that does for children? If that was a case where there was sarcasm or unkind speech between a husband and a wife as they were working through something. When you call the family back in together, and now you know what, you know what that does for the, for the children? Like, mom and dad are okay. Mom and dad, we're going to make it. Like, because they love Jesus, and they're willing to display the mercies of God. And I can rest assured that no matter how many times that was happened, whether it was in private or in front of us, that they will always forgive. Don't you want them to take something like that with them as they go into relationships? How are your children going to be married if they can't do this? <laughs> like, they're going to live a very destructive marital and family life if they can't learn to, to know how to forgive. Think about step four. Then you repent. You confess it, you repentance, and repentance is a turning from. And step five, you forgive as Christ forgave you. And then step six, this is really simple. You do it as many times as you need to. It doesn't mean if it's one time a day, five times a day, ten times a day, or a hundred times a month, or a hundred times a year. Whenever it happens, you be willing and ready to display the mercies of God. Now recognize what you're granting. Here's what you're promising that person. I'm not going to dwell on this incident. Because remember, it's not that you forgot it. It's that you choose to not hold it against them. So when you say, when someone comes to you and says, I forgive you, here's what you are saying and promising. Forgiveness is a promise. I promise to do this. I'm not going to dwell on this. Where? In my own mind. When does that tend to happen? When I, when I get into the same kind of conflict, and then all of a sudden I go, well, guess what? Uh, 
I've got a few things I've kind of kept in the back of the truck for a moment for just a time as this. And I'm going to bring them up to you now. No, that doesn't allow you to do that because now you say, no, no, you forgave me. Now, if it's a pattern of characterization, you may have to readdress something again, which a lot of people will say, oh, you brought it up. You forgave me. Don't talk about it. Now, that's not the point. The point is, if you start to get characterized by something, yes, then you have to talk about it again. But at at face value, when you make the promise, here's promise number one, I'm not going to dwell on it. Which means when I see you, when you come home, or when I come home, or when I see that child, I, I look at them with love, I don't look at them with disgust. There's nothing between us. I love them. I'm going to be merciful, and we're going to enjoy relationship. Here's promise number two. I won't bring this incident up with evil intent. This doesn't mean that you can't bring up stuff, but you can't bring it up with evil intent to hurt them. Like, oh, you, this is where we get, well, you always do, or you never. It's never always. Okay, it's, it's, it, you can never say that. Because it's always something. You've done something. Don't bring it up with evil intent. And evil intent assumes sin before the facts are revealed. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things until otherwise proven. And godly intent uses wisdom to reveal what is true. Tell me about this. Help me understand this. Here's promise number three. I'm not going to talk to others about this incident with evil intent. Like this even happens at prayer times at churches where all of a sudden some kind of a prayer component turns into a a prayer gossip. Like we really need to pray for so-and-so. They're really just going through a hard time. Oh, really? What was it? Oh, yeah, they've been dealing with all kinds of sin. Like we don't talk about it with others. We don't go to your children and say, oh, your father or your mother, I can't stand when they do this and I'm, you know, storming around or she's storming around. You don't talk about it with others and you deal with it so that you train your kids that they say something like, maybe you need to go back to them. Has this really been restored? And you teach the entire family unit to say, are are we going to do this together because we don't have the latitude to to just let these kind of things go. Maybe you really didn't forgive, and you're thinking you did, but you didn't. But you can't talk about it with that kind of evil intent. And promise number four, I I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. God doesn't let our sin, even now as believers, when we confess it and we are cleansed, he does not allow it to stand between us He doesn't hold it against us. The depth of his mercy is so sufficient. And in our homes and in our lives and in our marriages and in our churches, we need to be very, very forgiving people. Because the reality of it is, as we walk through our lives, we don't want to be this kind of person who's declared as a wicked person who's who's absolutely merciless, who's just saying, sorry for this, sorry for this, and all we mean is, sorry I got caught, sorry I did this, but I really am not really concerned about the depth of where that, the root of where that sin came from. Get down to asking forgiveness all the way to the root. Help your children begin to understand that their sin issues are not just a byproduct of of something they didn't like that day and they did this behavior. Help them understand that the depth of God's mercy is available to them at the very root person of who they are all the way down to their heart. And God sees how they think and what they're thinking about and how they're viewing people. 
And you can go and you can ask him for all those things and say, God, forgive. And can I just encourage you? Take it so serious. I beg of you, take it serious enough to not be willing to live in a community and amongst a community of believers where you're just fine with having things at odds with people. Somebody goes in that door, so you go out that door. But you can somehow just take communion and it's all okay. Fight for unity by being, by being merciful. Fight for being a forgiving person for the purpose of displaying the very majestic mercy that was given to you when you asked Jesus to forgive you. So that when any other, like the parable, when anyone else comes to you and says, do you forgive me? that you would be so quick to say, I'm going to forgive you the way Christ forgave me. Let's pray. Father, we clearly need so much help with having a kind of heart that is ready to be merciful. Lord, it just doesn't, it's not the natural impulse of our heart because of our flesh. We still even struggle with even practicing these things even after we get saved. Lord, we often understand the significance of Peter's question, how many times do we have to do this? Lord, and we are thankful for Your endless willingness to con- for, for us to cleanse us and forgive us of our continual sin. Lord, help us to be mindful and to be appreciative of that kind of mercy and then to become merciful people by being forgiving. In Your name we pray. Amen.